Thank you, worship team. Happy Father's Day, dads. You are important, not as important as you think. Bridge kids, you're dismissed. We're going to talk about how important dads are in just a minute. So one thing that's uh, clear on this Father's Day is that dads don't seem to be as important as moms. For example, about 85% of households in the U.S. celebrate Mother's Day, while only 76% celebrate Father's Day. An estimated $19.9 billion is spent for Mother's Day every year, while only $12.5 billion is spent on dads. Doesn't seem fair, does it? The average spending per person in the U.S. for Mother's Day is $162.44. Now, I don't know if that's total for mom or if that's just individual giving. The average spending for Father's Day is only $113.80. 81.3% give mom a card on Mother's Day, but only 64% give dad a card. I wonder if there's some reasons for that. Maybe mom is just a little more present than dad when you look at the American family. So dads, I'm sorry that you don't rate as well as moms. Maybe you can do better next year. Today we're going to look at Luke 22. So I want you to join me in Luke chapter 22 where our focus is not on dads but on disciples and discipleship. In Luke 22, Jesus was preparing his disciples For his final departure, he was training leaders. And there's a few things in here for you too, Dad. Previously in Follow the Leader, Luke chapter 22, we saw Judas agree to betray Jesus over to the religious leaders and the temple guard. He shared his last supper with his followers and he spoke of a new covenant that would be inaugurated in his blood. And that brings us to our passage in uh, Luke chapter 22. I want to read the first part of that. Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin at verse 24. So here's what happens. Verse 24. Also a dispute arose among them to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now this is important. Who's going to be the greatest? Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? You are those who have stood by me in trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table and my kingdom, and sit on thrones and judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And we'll stop right there. First of all, dealing with egos. Sometimes guys have egos, and we see that among the disciples. When you think about this, Jesus is... he's. This is his last night. He's going to be dead tomorrow afternoon, Friday by 3 p.m. 
Jesus has a lot of things on his mind. He is highly focused on, his, on the situation before them. Sometimes guys have egos. Sometimes dads have egos too. I've noticed that, being a dad and all. We see the problem in verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now this happened on more than one occasion. This is not the first time they've thought about this or talked about it. They were worried about their own status, their popularity, what people would think, what people were saying. Were they liked on Facebook and on Instagram? If, if they had it, they would have. Who does Jesus like the most? Uh, which one of them is the smartest? Which one runs the fastest? There's going to be a contest later. Which one of them is the best speaker? Who knows the Bible better? Which one is, has the quickest wit? Who's made the most money so far? Who will get the favored places when Jesus' kingdom gets here? So Jesus gives instruction in verses 25 through 30, and here's his point. There is a way of the world, and then there is the way of Christ, and that's what he wants to focus on. He said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercised authority over them called themselves benefactors. Now, just you know, to be reminded, Gentiles are the non-Jewish people, which are like most of us in the world. And the, the idea is that the normal way of secular leadership, and we see it in our world today, is to use power and authority to get things done and to get people to do what they want them to do, to get the right outcome, um, to get others to do what leaders want. It's a, often a top-down style. It's very autocratic. And Jesus said, but you are not to be like that. That's not the way of a Christ follower. You are to be different. He continues, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves Greatest like the youngest because the youngest has the least seniority and the least amount of influence in the family. He's just a pup. He has the lowest status. The, and, the one, and so the greatest needs to be take the lowest position. And the one who rules should be one like the one who serves because leadership for Christ's followers is about being a servant. Now, Jesus is going to switch gears here. They have just done some really dumb thing to sit around and worry about who's the greatest just before all this is coming down. This is a tragic night. And they're worried about who's the greatest. And Jesus doesn't berate them. Jesus goes on now, and he is going to affirm them. It's, it's almost a surprise. He says, you are those who have stood by me. Verse 28, in my trials, you've stood with me. He reminds them of their faithfulness. They've, they've been with him from the beginning. They have stuck with him through thick and thin. He wants them to know they're going to be remembered. They're going to be rewarded. Verse 29, and he says, I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. It's his kingdom. 
And he's passing it on, responsibility and leadership, as well as reward. Um, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. You know this. This is what some of us memorized the Lord's Prayer. Verse 9, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants his followers to pray about his kingdom, that his kingdom will come so that his will will be accomplished. So God just says, do something, and it happens. And of course, as that happens in our lives, the kingdom is present, and God's influence takes place through us in a small way. But there is a time come when it'll be total influence in the kingdom of God by the king. And by the way, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 4, speaks of this. We often look at this as a picture of heaven, and it is. And the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So heaven coming to the earth, heaven on earth, and this is the establishment of the eternal kingdom that has never existed before, prepared as a bride, I think that might be the church, beautifully dressed for her husband, there's that imagery of uh, Christ being the, hu- the, the, the husband and the church being the bride, and I heard a loud voice from the f- throne saying, and next slide, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear. And uh, this is all you get out of this. There's a time coming when there is going to be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death or dying. And here it is. There's going to be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed. God's kingdom is coming. And it's going to be total. Verse 30, so that he tells his disciples, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know what? I don't know what that's all about. But I do know that the 12 disciples, and this is not going to include Judas, it's going to include Matthias, who comes later in Acts chapter 1, are going to be given a position of honor and some authority in this future kingdom over the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is a unique responsibility and opportunity for these 12. And... There have been 12 tribes of Israel. God raised up a family, his family, out of 12 families of Israel, 12 tribes, and they are the nation Israel, the sons of Jacob. And there is this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, and God is going to give unique authority to the 12 
to have leadership and responsibility with the future kingdom of God. Verses 31 through 34, there's a prediction. Next, Jesus prepares his top leader for what is to come. He says, Simon, Simon, that's what he called Peter. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. And he's warning Peter that there is going to be some unbelievable spiritual warfare crossing their path. And it's going to be scary and dangerous and powerful. Satan has asked, he wants to test your, to see what's in your heart. He wants to see if you will all fold. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you. And that's going to make all of the difference. Jesus prayed for his disciples and he prayed for you in John chapter 17 and for all those who would believe. He says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is very prophetic for, for Simon Peter. Jesus had prayed for Peter. Jesus knew what was coming. Peter did not. Peter's faith is going to be tested greatly, and he is going to fall down. And he's going to be totally embarrassed. And he's going to be humiliated and humbled by his failure. And we're going to see that. But Jesus, get, there's a little bit of hope here. And I, I'm sure the disciples didn't even catch it until much later. When, when they recall these words, when you have turned back, Peter is coming back. He's going to fall down. He's going to fail. He's going to be resilient. And he's going to come back. Because that's what Christ followers do. They're not perfect. But they come back. Judas did not come back, and he was not a Christ follower. He was just attached to the group. But Peter, a little overconfident, he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And by the way, he's going to get both of those. It's coming. He's going to go to prison more than once, and he is going to be executed for, for Jesus Christ. Verse 34, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Can you just imagine what Peter, what are you talking about? I am not like that. I am all in to, to death. Jesus knew what was coming. Guys sometimes have egos, don't they? Peter had an ego. And even the other, 11, or other disciples present at that time were all about who's the greatest, just for, for a period there. Sometimes guys overstate things, like Peter. Uh, sometimes we power up to show our greatness. But that's not the way of Jesus. Verses 35 and 38, the preparation. Then Jesus asked them, so when I sent you with that, so he's just changing gears all the time, but he's getting them ready. He's training leaders. He said, when I sent you without a purse or bag or sandals, did, not, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. 
You, rem- you may remember in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus sent out the 12 on a training mission, told them, don't take these things with you. And then in Luke chapter 10, he sent out 72 on a training mission with responsibility, proclaim the good news, but don't want you to take all these things. I want you to depend totally on God. Here's the change, verse 36. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. Also take a bag, take your overnight bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, this is going to be for defense, not for offense. That was a big debate here. There's not very much information about this whole thing. But now, was he talking about a literal sword they're supposed to go buy? Everybody go buy a sword? Or is it metaphorical? There's good reason to believe that it is metaphorical. But even if we take it literally, it is about what's coming. He said, I sent you without a purse, a bag, or sandals. Now, um, what I want you to do, if you have a purse, I want you to take it. If you have a bag, take it. If you don't have a sword, buy one. Because everything is changing. It is going to be way more dangerous. Security is going to be important. And people are not going to accept you the way they did earlier. It's going to be different. It's going to be dangerous. And especially this night is going to be crazy. Jesus continues, verse 37, is written, and he was numbered with transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. He said, and he quotes from Isaiah 53, and he was numbered with trans, the transgressors, and Jesus says, I tell you this must be fulfilled. It's one of those, it, it is necessary. It, it, this is God's plan. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Now, one of the amazing things that is happening right here is that Jesus is identifying himself with the servant of Isaiah 53, one of the most important passages that identifies the Messiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 12 is just the whole chapter is focusing on Jesus. This is just one verse, being numbered with the transgressors. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, this servant. Certainly, Jesus is among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. Speaking of the crucifixion, and he was numbered with the transgressors, meaning when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified just as a criminal on Golgotha, the place of the skull, And he was crucified between two other people executed as criminals. He was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And Jesus is saying, I will fulfill this passage. And that gives a whole lot of weight to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 fulfills a number of prophecies about Messiah. And then in verse 38, the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Now, is this literal or is it metaphorical? If you take it on a metaphorical that Jesus is talking, because he doesn't say, okay, wait a minute, guys, have you got your bag? You got your purse? Got your sword? Check, check. Okay, you're ready. 
Or is he just warning them about the opposition that's coming? And he wants them to be aware of this. And yes, you're going to have to watch your steps. You're going to have to watch your back. So the disciples say, okay, you know, the disciples are simple, and they're just thinking, okay, he said, so, so okay, how many, oh, we got two. Inventory taken. Is this good enough, Jesus? And it's almost like Jesus saying, enough of your pettiness. It's done. It's coming. He's not building an army to fight with swords. The battle is way different than that. Application to think about. Dads, sometimes our ego gets in the way, doesn't it? We are to be leaders in our family just like the disciples were to be be leaders in their time. Phil Leinberger writes in Leadership Journal, we all want to be great. We just don't want folks to know that we want to be great. Jesus would have us to be humble in leadership. We need to be willing to admit to our families when we're wrong, to ask for forgiveness. We are not to be the greatest in our family. We are to be the most humble in our families. Pastor and author Jim Sambala has written, humility is the key to experiencing God's power. What do you think of that? Humility is the key to experiencing God's power. Maybe not the only key, important one. So we're, we're dealing with egos. Now we're going to focus on prayer, focusing on prayer, verses 39 through 46. Next, the setting is in 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. So this was a pattern that Jesus had when he came to Jerusalem for festivals. In the city, inside the walls during the day, often at the temple, teaching and preaching, making himself available for Q&A. And at nighttime, they went outside the walls. They went to a little safe haven on the Mount of Olives. There was a garden there, also called the Garden of Gethsemane, and they hung out in that area. It was a, as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Now, this is how Judas is going to know where to find Jesus, because this was his pattern. Think about this. Jesus knows he's going to be arrested, and Judas is going to betray him, And he's headed right for the place where it's all going to happen. And he knows it. Verse 40, the request. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. This is what he needed his leaders to do on this night. It was leaders in training. Tonight would be the fiercest spiritual battle they had ever seen. Judas had already caved in, and Satan had entered him. Verses 41 through 44, we see the prayer. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. So Jesus separates himself. He gets alone. We learn from that. Hey, it's... Sometimes we need to be alone with God. 
This is what Jesus modeled. Sometimes he prayed with a group. And here's the prayer, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. This is simple, it is profound, it is direct. The cup refers to the judgment of sin, God's cup of wrath to be poured out on Jesus for our sin and the sin of the entire world. And Jesus would be separated from his Father, which was the most difficult thing that he faced. But Jesus prays, bottom line, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus, in his humanity, did not want to experience the wrath of God and total separation. He did not want to be nailed to a cross. He did not want people to beat him with a scourge. And he asked God to remove it. And ultimately, he submitted himself to the Father's will. Little side note here. Do you think God always answered Jesus' prayer? Well, the answer is yes and no. Because what Jesus wanted was for the cup to be removed, and the answer was no, because it never happened. And yet, what was God's will? How did God answer? He answered by sending Jesus through the crucifixion. And Jesus was in total submission. What can you and I learn about prayer? When we go through a dark night of the soul, when we go through pain and suffering, personally or with our family, what can we learn? We should ask. We should ask for help. We should ask for healing. We should ask for relief. Bottom line, what if it doesn't come? Are you just gonna, would, do we just blame God? What if Jesus' mother, Mary, came away and said, I can't believe in a God who would allow that to happen to my son. What can we learn about prayer? Verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. God sent Jesus, the Son of Man, who was fully human, some on-the-spot encouragement right from heaven. You know, angels accompanied Jesus on, in many areas of his ministry. And here, it's just to show up, to affirm him, to encourage him, to strengthen him, to say, God's in this with you. And being in anguish, verse 44, how much anguish that he would, uh, he's about to bear the sin of the world. Now, you know, we can talk about it, we can say it, but what was that anguish? He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Sometimes uh, that's the sweat like drops of blood is 
explained as well. He was just sweating profusely as if there was an open wound and blood was pouring out. But there is a real condition called hematridrosis. Don't ask me to say it again. But it is a real condition where high stress at times can produce drops of blood within perspiration. Perhaps that's what Jesus is dealing with extreme stress. His prayer is deeply intense. Verses 45 and 46, there's a reminder that the disciples had a terrible time staying awake while Jesus was in this crisis. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples and found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow, how sad is that? Why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. I would imagine if I happened to be one of the 12, I would have been asleep too. So I don't, I don't doubt that. They probably were exhausted and it's really hard to stay up all night. But Jesus was in a crisis and the adrenaline is flowing And he wanted his men to pray. He wanted his men to be prayers. He wanted his men to be prayer warriors for him on this night. And they let him down. And just by way of an application for dads, dads, we need to be men of prayer. We are to be leaders in our family, just like these disciples are to be leaders. And we need to pray for our wives, and we need to pray for our kids We need to pray for our church. We need to pray that our lives will have impact on our world for Christ. Of course, this applies to all of us who are Christ followers. So we are dealing with egos and focusing on prayer. We come to our last section, handling the arrest, verses 47 through 54. We see the plot unfold, 47 and 48. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. So when you, this is a crazy picture. Judas was in leadership training with Jesus as one of the twelve. And now Judas is leading this large group of people. He's leading the chief priests of Israel and the temple guard and Roman soldiers, and Judas is leading them. And he's leading them to betray his master. Judas is leading the opposition party. Verse 48, Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, Jesus, when this, he's coming, and Jesus calls him out before it happens. So it was customary to approach an honored rabbi and to give him a kiss. I'm glad we don't have that custom in our day. It was just a custom, you know? And it was also a custom for close friends, to, if they hadn't seen each other, to come up and to give uh, one another a kiss. But Judas had agreed to do this 
to point out who Jesus was in the dark so that quickly they could identify Jesus and quickly he could be captured so that there wouldn't be confusion and that he could get away. This is what took place in Luke 22, verses 4 and 5. And Judas went to the chief priests. Now that's going to be Annas and Caiaphas. There's only supposed to be one, but there are two. Caiaphas is a real high priest. Annas is a former high priest, and he's the daddy-in-law, the godfather, if you will. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple. So they had to have the temple police involved to carry out the security issues and discuss with them how he might betray Jesus. So that was his plan all along. They were delighted and agreed to give him money, and other Gospels tell us it was just 30 pieces of silver. The defense, 49 through 51, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, he said something about sword. He said, he said two is enough. Okay, we got here. Lord, should we strike? The good thing is they asked, but they didn't wait for his direction. They just took action without, it was impulsive. And one of them, verse 50, struck the high priest, cutting off his right ear. And it was Peter, Luke doesn't tell us. And he cut off Malchus's, the, he was a servant of the high priest. And Luke, is the physician, is the only one who tells us it's the right ear. Verse 51, but Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Very clearly, Jesus did not intend to use the sword for battle on this occasion. And there's no occasion in the future where he gives those instructions. Jesus wanted the bloodshed to stop immediately. How authoritative were those words? Stop. No more of this. You would think that it would be normal if one of these lowly disciples pulled out a sword and cut off somebody's ear. He would be executed on the spot, no questions asked. But Jesus said, no more of this, and everything stops. Not only that, Jesus picks up the ear and restores Malchus's ear, and he heals him, and this is the last miracle of Jesus before he dies. And he serves mankind to the very end. The arrest is in verse 52 through 54. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? So it's just interesting. This happens in the middle of the night. Then Jesus wants to draw this out. Um, they come in the middle of the night. He said, every day I was with you in temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Not only the physical darkness, but the spiritual darkness reigns. So think about this. In the middle of the night, you got two high priests out there. They have to be there. They want to see this thing happen. They just can't delegate it. 
and they've got the security of the temple guard, and the other uh, gospels identify that there's a Roman legion there too, a legion of 600 men. Uh, They probably didn't send out all 600, but they sent out a pretty significant number in the middle of the night. And Jesus had been there. Why didn't they just, if he was so bad, why didn't they just arrest him in the daytime? And then verse 54, then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest, Peter, and at the high priest, Peter followed at a distance. So we're going to leave Jesus under arrest until next time. Peter was ready to engage in physical battle until death for the sake of Jesus. But dads, we have a bigger spiritual battle than using weapons of violence. We have been given a sword that is bigger, that that we can take up for Jesus, and it is the Word of God. It is a weapon of spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 7 talks about the resources we have, talks about the armor of God. Paul says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we can do battle We can do spiritual warfare with the Word of God. Um, We need to be men of the Word who invest our lives. You don't have to know everything today, but I hope you'll just stay connected with God's Word and keep learning, keep developing a biblical worldview so that you can uh, filter truth against error, against darkness, light against darkness. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9 states that God's word is to be impressed on the heart of parents. It's to cut our hearts. It's to mark our hearts permanently so that we now can impress on our children. It's not about telling our kids what to do. It's about being so taken by God's word that we pass it on by our attitudes and our actions and our instruction. And so, dads, I just want to ask, do you have a plan to continually grow in your knowledge of Scripture, in your understanding of God's Word? Do you have a commitment to follow God's Word? One of my favorite passages is Philippians 4.13, where the Apostle uh, Paul says, I can do all things through him, meaning Christ. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And that's something we can ask for. This is a spiritual resource. This is what makes us strong. I can do all things through Christ. He's the one who gives us strength. It's not about having a testosterone overload. It's about having Christ. Henri Nouwen once wrote, everything in me wants to move upward Downward mobility with Jesus goes radically against my inclinations, against the advice of the world surrounding me, and against the culture which I am a part. He wrote that in 1987. All of us need humility. All of us need to be people of prayer. All of us 
need the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Men, we need you to lead your families so that they'll know these things too. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the Word of God and um, the principles that we see about daily living. Thank you, God, so much for sending the Lord Jesus to this earth to live as our example and to die in our place and to offer us eternal salvation and for him to send the Holy Spirit to be in our lives to empower us and strengthen us. God, may we be humble people. May we grow in prayer, in trusting you and living by faith. May we be people of the word of God, not to beat other people over the head with it, but to live it out, to teach it, to model it, to display your love to our world. For Jesus' sake, amen.